As mentioned already this evening, it is indeed a grand blessing that we've each been given, the opportunity to assemble and to do so in the name of the God of heaven, to appreciate the glorious wonder of the church as our Heavenly Father has planned it and our Savior has brought it into existence. This evening, as we do come together, we continue our journey through the Scriptures this year. We set before ourselves the, the, desi the desirable chore of reading through the Scriptures. And this evening, as we come to a New Testament passage found in the third chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, we will in fact give a lesson or hear one entitled, What Demons Know. As we do so, I hope that we'll be reminded of these impressive truths as the Word of God presents them and that you and I might each be better challenged and better equipped to grant the great fight of faith that's before us each and every day, 1 Timothy 6, verse number 12. It is in light of that that these opening remarks are certainly appropriate as you and I give thought to the fact we have now completed some 161 verses of the Word of God. And in that reading, we have read, of course, many chapters of the Old Testament and now in the New we have reached that point of completing the book of Matthew and now in the book of Mark as well. Somewhat less than 13.5% of the scriptures has now been read and by the time we arrive at next Sunday, we will of course be almost at the 15% mark. You'll notice on that slide that some of the remaining thoughts and comments ask us to contemplate the matter of devils as the King James Version calls them. The demons, as other translations, make reference to those evil spirits that you and I encounter in the Word of God. That particular phrase and reference seemingly occurs rather frequently in the Scriptures, especially in the Gospel accounts. And in so doing, we immediately are reminded of the intriguing set of circumstances, namely that the Old Testament seems not to mention them hardly at all, and yet they're mentioned so very frequently during the life and times of the Master while He lived on earth but then we seemingly don't find them near as much as we close the, the, the New Testament record. Tonight, I hope as we reflect on that text that Brother Jeremy read a moment ago in Mark, the third chapter, that we can think about what the demons know. And I believe we'll be impressed in some ways with what they know, and maybe that'll encourage us to be more dutiful with respect to what we know as well. One of the aspects of the lesson that surely will come before us is what about the demon possession of which we read in the New Testament? Does that occur today? And if so, in what way? If it doesn't, then perhaps we can keenly understand the way in which it doesn't. It might be in light of that that let's give some thought then to these demons as we turn to a slide that I've entitled simply that. The demons. Notice in that text that we read together in Mark chapter 3 a moment ago, that particular passage set before us the fact that these demons had some interesting pieces of things to say. They actually very powerfully and directly confessed something. Maybe it would do us well to reflect on from whence did they come. Well, maybe this slide will perhaps assist us toward that goal and that aim. We realize that in the very outset of the Scriptures, the God of heaven affirmed that in the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. And in that statement of creation, that statement of summary, if you please, we learn about the grandeur and the marvelous wonder of our God's creative capacity. 
It is true that amongst those creative efforts of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find, of course, the land as we know it, the water as we know it, the various animals of the earth, human beings as we know them. We also find, though, that there are some other passages that shine light upon the fact that God's creative activity also included angelic beings. In Psalm 148, verses 2 through 5, we find a reference there to the great creative ability of God. And as various and sundry things are listed, like the earth and the other attributes of God's inanimate creation, included in the list of His creative efforts is none other than the angels themselves. As we then give thought to those angels, surely we understand that they were not fashioned in any sense other than good. For isn't it said in Genesis 1.31 that God looked upon all that He had made... And all of it he affirmed to be very good. It is true, though, that those angels were given the capability of their own rational decision. They were given the opportunity to make their choices and their pursuits. And as you can see on that next slide, some of them, some of them chose to rebel against the authority, against the placement, against the absolute guidance of the God of heaven. That rebellion is one about which you and I might have a number of interesting questions and contemplations. But it's fair to say that the Scriptures say enough to help us appreciate the fact that the angels chose not or wished not to remain in their initial estate, as Jude verse 6 states it. But rather, they chose with desire to rebel against what God placed them in. And in so doing, that rebellion, of course, led to God's great displeasure with them. And as you can see in verses such as 2 Peter 2 verse 4, these angelic beings, of course, were bound in chains and they were thus safeguarded and held until that final day of judgment. These angelic beings, notice, they made their choice and at least this bunch made a very bad one. You'll notice beyond that that the one who seemed to be the leader of this group, the one who apparently the idea it was to promote such rebellion, the Scriptures go on to describe him as the devil, as Satan. John the Revelator describes him and as that dragon mentioned in chapter 12 of that book. As we then consider the fact of this, this being, this, this entity known as the devil, we find what an influential one he is. And in addition to that, we recognize that there seems to be a portrait in Revelation 12 of that war he fought with Michael, and we remember that he was the one defeated and cast out he was. And in that cast out arrangement, he still is said to be the deceiver of the whole world. Didn't Jesus, the very Son of God, in reference to him, describe him as a murderer from the beginning? John 8, 44. Didn't he call him a liar who is such that the truth does not, nor has it ever dwelt within him? Once he made that decision to rebel, he forever enlisted his position as this great enemy to the God of heaven, in that nature of that enemy, doesn't it bring us to these comments that are next? This being, those angels that chose to follow him in that rebellion, isn't it amazing that Hebrews 1.14 describes angels as ministering spirits, describing them as those that are messengers. The devil also has messengers. He has those who are those associates or those supporters of Him. 
Isn't it interesting that Jesus in Matthew 25, 41 made reference to the devil and his angels? Angels of the devil himself. Those were those individuals, those beings, I should, perhaps should say, that in fact were a part of that rebellion. They chose to side with this one who was the rebel, the rebel against God. It may well be in light of those things that the comments our Savior made in Matthew chapter 12 are indeed very intriguing because it brings us back to the very lesson that we're considering tonight. You'll notice that those particular statements in reference to those demons, again, the King James translation refers to them often as devils, and other translations will frequently use phrases such as evil spirits. When we think about those demons, Jesus had something interesting to say in that text of Matthew 12. You may recall that there was a, a one who was brought to Jesus. The text says that he was possessed of a demon. As a result, he was both blind and mute. In the conversation that ensued, you may recall that the Pharisees that were present actually accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus, in response to that particular statement, made reference ultimately to an unpardonable sin. But as a part of that, he first gave absolute credence to the reality of this demon possession. It wasn't just a figment of imagination. It wasn't just an issue that was simply someone who was mentally unstable. This demon possession was a very real phenomenon. You'll notice beyond that that the Old Testament has given us very little preparation for such. As far as I was able to find only two Old Testament references, and sometimes even they are not abundantly clear, but it does seem that in Deuteronomy 32 as well as Psalm 106, there is at least a reference to the possibility of demon possession. But when we turn the page to come into the New Testament, that particular artifact changes dramatically. For now, it's not something that we just find rarely. It is, in fact, scattered all over the New Testament gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them in such abundant numbers of references, point us to the discussion we now recognize as demon possession. Individuals, sometimes they were women, sometimes they were men, sometimes they were young children. It seems as if there was no restriction on the one who might be afflicted with such. You'll notice in these New Testament references, we find a number of matters which if we put and synthesize those things, we can draw some rather interesting observations. These individuals that we find that were suffering with demon possession, as you can see on that slide before you, was quite often such that a great deal of influence and a great deal of actual control was expressed in the life of the human being by the demon himself. You may remember some of these as examples. It might do us well to notice at the very outset. There are certain passages like Matthew 4, closing few verses of that chapter, that help us see that sometimes today you and I may have heard individuals who refer to that ancient issue of demon possession, that really was just ignorance on the part of the people of that day. It really was epileptic seizures. It really was some other kind of mental malady. But that does make it interesting to read verses like Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, 
for in that verse, demon possession is singled out over against epilepsy and over against other kinds of illness. It appears not to have been just some kind of schizophrenia, just some kind of other kind of paranormal exhibition. It was, as the Scriptures affirm it, and as Jesus said was possible, possession by one or more demons. As you give thought to those demons, notice some of the things that those demons brought about. As I mentioned a moment ago, that idea, that issue of control, sometimes these demons brought about blindness. The person was stricken with blindness, apparently. You'll remember that as in that scene of Matthew 12, verse 22, this one possessed of an evil spirit was brought to the master. He was said to be both blind and mute. The concourse of the description seems to suggest that the evil spirit was part and parcel of, of unfortunately, those realities. But those are just a sampling of some of the issues that this demon possession was able to bring. You'll notice there's another, and perhaps this case compels us more than any other. You'll remember that scene recorded in Matthew chapter 8 as well as Mark chapter 5. There was a gentleman... He was possessed with demons, and you may remember that he really acted extraordinarily unusually. He lived amongst the tombs. He would go about cutting on himself. Beyond that, you may remember he went about naked. He had superhuman strength. He terrorized the people who would come his way. You remember that gentleman? You may remember that when he first came in contact or made observation of Jesus, those demons immediately made a great affirmation and a confession. This particular one who acted with such unusual character, again, that was prompted by the nature of the demons because after the Lord cast out the demons, he was found in his right mind and his behavior was normal. Doesn't that indicate to us the control, the power, the influence that those demons were able to exert? You'll notice perhaps another example. On another occasion, a father brought his son to Jesus. And to Jesus, he made the statement that this boy of his, he foamed at the mouth. When the Spirit tore him, he would fall down and go into what appeared to be a seizure-like state. Again, that was prompted by Mark chapter 9, the feature surrounding possession by a demon. It's easy to see then, isn't it, that this kind of behavior would have been extremely troubling. It would have been extremely bothersome if a loved one were afflicted with this. And yet, as we give thought to the way in which this demon possession came about, you'll notice that our interest only heightens when we realize that there seemingly was a degree of independence. And by that I mean this. When those demons recognized Jesus, often the demons spoke seemingly apart from the person in whom they were dwelling. It was the demons who made confession about Christ. Did you notice in our reading that on this occasion as the demons would confess, Thou art the Son of God? The demons were well appreciative of the fact of who this man was, what power he had, and the capability that was latent within him. Amazing, isn't it, to appreciate that that kind, of that kind of matter and that kind of condition was one that prevailed. We do perhaps then reach the point of asking another set of questions. 
So how did it come about that if we read so little about the possession of demons in the Old Testament, how did it come about that the number of such cases was so abundant in the gospel accounts? Specifically in the time frame when Jesus was here upon earth and of course shortly thereafter. About the best we can say, here God doesn't give us all of the answers that we might wish. But it does seem as if, as we'll see in a moment, that evil spirits were permitted, they were allotted, allowed, if you will. This degree of the opportunity for possession, and it coincided for reasons that we'll study in a moment, with the very existence of our Savior in the flesh upon earth. Maybe in light of that, the next thought should be a continuation of this. Because as those demons, those evil spirits of which we earlier spoke, as they were then given such liberty, they did then take it upon themselves to inhabit, to enter into individuals. And as they did, you and I remember some of the things that the New Testament says about it. Sometimes that entrance was in part because of the individuals themselves. You may remember that our Lord spoke on one occasion about an individual out of whom a demon was cast in Matthew chapter 12. But after having been cast out, the demon returned at some point later and found it swept and garnished out of the person's own slothfulness, the person's own laziness, the person's own failure to feel that which was that void was something productive. Then the Spirit found the liberty to enter again. Maybe that suggests some of this may in part have been the result of a person's own failures in one way or another. But there are other instances which cannot be explained that way. Like the young boy of which we spoke earlier, he appeared to be rather a child. And yet here was one who himself was afflicted with demon possession in Mark chapter 9. Perhaps in light of those things, we at least can make this observation. Our Savior had absolute power to cast them out. There was no instances by which we encounter that He was not able in thoroughness and in completeness to send them and they order and they obeyed that which He commanded. Do we not remember on one occasion as a conversation ensued between Jesus and these? This was an occasion in which, again, there was one, you may remember the word legion in reference to the number of demons that were involved on that occasion. You may remember that they, in fact, besought him to cast them into the herd of swine, the herd of hogs. The Lord did so, and the hogs drowned there in the sea. But as you consider with me the nature of this demon possession, what great strength and power was latent in such, often with such unfortunate consequences. You'll notice that not only could our master cast them out, we remember he gave his apostles the power to do so as well. In Matthew 10 verse 8, as he sent them out on what we sometimes call that limited commission, you may remember he gave them power over devils. They were able to cast them out. They were able to exert influence and force on that occasion over them. We also find later that even the disciples apparently had the capability of casting them out specifically those disciples on whom the apostles had laid their hands, Acts 8.18. As we remember those particular instances, doesn't it highlight for us, though, the fact that the powers that existed over them were rather limited? There are no apostles still living today. There are no one on whom the apostles have laid any hands today. The 
Jesus, of course, Himself doesn't exist in the flesh here any longer. Maybe that hints to what we shall then revisit and learn also a bit later in our lesson this evening. As we think then about these demons, maybe it's also interesting to observe that this matter of demon possession is still keenly in, in our sights, isn't it? We're intrigued by the thought of it in the sense that it makes us curious. Perhaps some of these thoughts are very much along our line of consideration. We notice at the very outset of this slide that the ability, the capability of casting out these demons was a clear demonstration and exhibition of the power of God. Even the Pharisees recognized it. In that discussion that they had with Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, when they accused the Lord of casting these out by the power of Beelzebub, even they at least indirectly admitted that the power to do so was with a power far higher than man himself. And as you and I well recognize that this power to cast them out, the power the Lord had that the apostles had, was a demonstration of His manifestation and it provided a wonderful confirmation of who He was. Perhaps in light of that, this set of statements is in order. When Jesus gave that great commission, as recorded in Mark chapter 16, we remember that He made the statements concerning go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And as the Lord gave those marching orders to those that were His followers, those apostles on that occasion, we remember how dutiful they were to proclaim and to preach the urgency of that matter. And as we come to the book of Acts, we find that they preached the very message the Lord commissioned them to preach. But you'll notice something else our Lord added near the close of Mark chapter 16. In that very next verse, verse 17, He made the statement then about that miraculous gifts would accompany their first century capabilities in regard to those matters. He specifically made reference to casting out devils. Isn't it interesting then that these first century individuals who themselves lived in that age and time of miraculous capabilities along with that would be this ability to cast out these demons. What a demonstration of the power of God. That's the very idea that's included in the last wordings of that chapter. I'd invite you to look at verse 20 of that same chapter. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. They confirmed what they preached. We remember that that was before the written word in all of its New Testament 27 books was completed. And so as an individual would proclaim and preach often, that was accompanied by a confirmation, a particular effort or work. And as that confirmation provided authenticity to the message, it allowed them to understand this gentleman is a proclaimer of the Word of God. This person is an associate of the great God of heaven what a tremendous thing it would have been to witness a casting out of one known to be possessed with demons. And in so doing, those first century workers, those of whom we've spoken, had that possession. Later in Hebrews chapter 2, another reference to a very similar matter. Notice they confirmed the word with signs following. 
And as they did so, again, it's mentioned about the works, miraculous in character, that they were able to do. Satan's work of demon possession, as you can see about the midst of that slide, it thus reached a height during this time of our Lord's ministry upon earth. Prior to that time, we appreciate again very little mention in the Old Testament. But we find when our Savior came, and when the great power of God was manifested in Him and in those associates that were His apostles, we find also that Satan apparently too had a heightened ability to exhibit demon possession. And that demon possession, again, is one that allowed the work of God to be seen so clearly. He could cast them out and give them orders and even force them to remain quiet. You'll notice that Jesus charged them on this occasion with something. Mark 3 verse 12, He charged them they should not make Him known. The Lord gave them some rather direct marching orders on this occasion, didn't He? As you'll notice furthermore on that slide, it does though lead us to observe that once the Word was confirmed, then it seems as if, just as was the case with the miracles, there would no longer be the latent power relative to demon possession. There would no longer be that capability, for there was no one able to cast them out anymore. We do learn in 1 Corinthians 13 that the age of miraculous matters passed. The inspired apostle affirmed it so. And as Paul spoke about the nature of prophecies and special knowledge and characteristics attached to tongues, for example, would pass, so too that apparently included all the miraculous gifts, and that, of course, meant those to cast out demons as well. As all of that passed, it seems to be directly in accordance to the prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah 13. You may remember what a scintillating passage in Zechariah 13, beginning in verse number 1, the ancient prophet was given a marvelous set of matters to foretell and to speak forth. He began by making reference to that day and that special occasion when there would be a fountain for cleansing opened outside Jerusalem. You and I know well that referred to the matters of the crucifixion and the shedding of the blood of Christ and indeed the fountain for the cleansing of sin the God of heaven opened. But you'll notice in the very next verse, it says, Attached to that, certain things would pass away. That is to say, they would not continue. Among the list are things like prophecies. Supernatural prophecies were to pass away. They were not to be permanent. And hence, we have not supernatural prophecies still existent and extant today. But you'll notice in that same list, evil spirits. The days of evil spirit, demon possession, if you please. Zechariah foretold it would come to an end and it would come to a particular moment when such would no longer be possible. Maybe in light of that, we then appreciate that there is no per se demon possession today as it was then. Now there are those people on earth who choose to do the bidding of the devil they choose to live the way the devil encourages them to do, and they choose to deal in sinful matters. But it's not the same as this matter forcing in that first century era of demon possession. The willful volition we see in all of that maybe brings us to yet another slide, one that touches upon the features that you and I perhaps see before us like this. You may notice that I entitled the lesson, What Demons Know. 
sometimes we are so impressed with what human beings know and we're so impressed with that which you and I have by various means been able to discover. But isn't it awfully impressive what the demons knew and what the demons sometimes spoke and what the demons frequently affirmed? Look at just some of the things that the demons knew and let us use it to challenge ourselves as we do so. First of all, it would be easy to appreciate the fact that the demons knew very, very well who Jesus was. This is just one sampling passage. How often do you remember that they confessed directly who He was? I've used that passage before us to remember here. They said, Thou art the Son of God. They did not in any way say, You might be the Son of God. You could be the Son of God. Perhaps you're the Son of God. These demons directly and openly in a public character confessed, Thou art the Son of God. This is again only one example. In Matthew 8, 29, that was the occasion, remember, when the demons were cast out and were sent into the herd of swine. There you may remember again, they openly and rather boisterously confessed, Thou art the Son of God. That's terribly intriguing in many ways, isn't it? Jesus, in that day and time, there were many who didn't know who He was, or at least were unwilling to confess it. You may remember the Pharisees. They didn't believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Many of them didn't. They tried to discredit His miracles. They claimed He cast out demons by the power of the devil Himself. Even when the time for the cross came, they still, many of them, cried out crucifying. They preferred Barabbas to Jesus. But yet here were demons that knew exactly who Jesus was. Perhaps the intriguing character of that leads us to at least think about our life and time today. There are still so very many multitudes who are unwilling to confess, unwilling to believe who Jesus was. They want to relegate Him to the dustbin of history. They want to, in fact, slide Him under the proverbial rug, excuse His behavior in any way because they are unwilling to accept the fact that if He was a Son of God, then He can make demands on them and there are certain things about their life that simply would have to be changed. We as humans can be often stubborn in that way, can't we? We prefer not to be told that we're wrong. And yet to admit that Jesus was a Son of God would go far too far for many of them. And so they just simply choose to believe not who He was. But yet the demons knew Him well. Isn't it true that those demons were appreciative of the fact that Jesus was a part of the original part of the creative effort? He was involved in the creation. Colossians 1, verses 16 to 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 tell us that without Him was not anything made that was made, and that includes those angelic beings. They knew very well who their Creator was, and they confessed, Thou art the Son of God. You'll notice in addition to that, these demons, their belief, their confidence, their assurance in Jesus was so strong that they were very much willing to confess it. Thou art the Son of God. Doesn't that stand in such stark contrast to sometimes the behavior of men? These devils believed 
James 2.19 tells us that they even trembled in the attribute of their belief. The devils believed and trembled. Yet today there are multitudes of men who don't tremble. They have little interest in the matters of religion. The church is of no consequence to them. The matters of life, death, and all of eternity seems not to cross their mind. And yet the devils knew it. And they were unwilling to keep quiet about it. What happened to those people of whom we find record in John chapter 12? There we read in verses 42 and 43 of that chapter, here were individuals. It says they believed in Jesus, but they would not confess Him because they were fearful of what the people would say. They'd be cast out of the synagogue. And so notice their belief was strongly tempered by the fact they would not openly confess. The devils believe and they did confess. Doesn't that remind us of that salient statement in 2 Corinthians 4.13? I have believed and therefore I have spoken. If you and I believe, will we speak? Will we allow the words of the Master to roll off our tongues and out of our mouths? And will we then bring forth the attribute of grace and mercy and truth to those about us? The devils believed and they spoke. You'll notice beyond that, we find also this interesting observation. The devils also knew, these demons knew of their final destiny. Isn't that interesting? I again would invite you to revisit with me the scene of Matthew chapter 8, part of our reading back in the month of January. On that occasion as Jesus confronted that, that gentleman, and remember there was legion of, of demons possessed in, in that gentleman, we remember on that occasion that a conversation ensued and as a part of that the demon said, Hast thou come to torment us before the time? Doesn't that speak volumes? To torment us before the time. They knew very well that eternal torment was their lot. They knew very well that the eternal characteristic of torment was their destiny, but here they wondered, had Jesus come to torment them even prior to the actual beginning of that moment? Hast thou come to torment us before the time? In 2 Peter 2 verse 4, we're reminded on that occasion that that rebel band of angels that were cast down, it says that they were bound in everlasting chains reserved unto the day of judgment. Notice again, their reservation is for eternal judgment. The darkness that goes with being apart from God. And they know it. Oh, how well they know it. Torment is their end. Contrast that to the lot of many others on the world today. Men and women, boys and girls, those who've reached that age of knowing wrong from right. How many are walking around on the footstool of our Heavenly Father, walking about on this planet? And even they, though they're apart from God, don't know that they're headed for torment. Sad and tragic, isn't it? The demons knew it. And God has foretold and set forth before us in His Word. And you and I can know very well what our eternal destiny is. To those who obey the Master, it in eternal life. Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Aren't we reminded in 1 John 5, 13, These things have written that ye might know that ye have eternal life and that ye might believe in the name of the Son of God. 
You see, there are things you and I can know just as well as the demons knew of their fate. Perhaps in light of all those things, what a challenge it is. And also what an encouragement it is to reflect upon passages such as 1 Peter 5, 8. We've been given a reference, a set of ideas tonight about these demons. We've learned a bit about what they know. What do you and I know this evening? Perhaps one final thought would be the closing aspect of that slide. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. You see, the chief adversary is still one who desires more and more to be his followers. Oh, we may not be able to, of course, possess in a demon-like fashion like they did in the first century, but nonetheless followers of his, those who will join ranks with this evil one and who will walk right down the pathway to the eternal destiny that awaits him. Again, there is a place prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Perhaps in light of that this evening, I might ask each of us the very earnest and the very honest sets of questions. Do you know where your eternal destiny is? If it's not heaven, why not make it so this evening? Why not join ranks in that book of life about which we studied this morning based on Exodus 32, verses 31 and following? Why not turn your attention to that which is the highest and greatest gift of all, Jesus, the Son of God? After all, 1 John 3, 8 still says that He came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the only one with sufficient power, sufficient majesty and might, sufficient characteristic to be able to overwhelm that evil one. Jesus is that strong man spoken of in Mark chapter 3, verse 28. He is the one who has entered the strong man's house and spoiled his goods. Sometimes you and I think about thieves and robbers who break into your house when you aren't there. They won't come when you are there if they can help it. They wait till there's no one there to oppose them and resist them. One has come to resist the devil, and the devil knows that he is no match for the Son of God. Tonight, if you aren't on the winning side, why not again make it so? The demons know of their fate, and you can know of your good fate tonight by knowing, in fact, the Son of God, knowing your membership in the church. That plan of salvation is required, and you must adhere to it. For Jesus said that, again, they that obey Him are the recipients of eternal life. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You need to repent of those sins in your life that have separated you from God and have driven a wedge between you and the nature of, at this point, eternal life. That repentance commanded in Luke 13, 5. You need to confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God. That confession demanded in Matthew 10, 32 and 3. And then be immersed, baptized for the, for the remission of your sins, Acts twenty two sixteen. If tonight we could assist you in that way, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have begun that walk with Jesus, but you no longer are faithful, you have slipped back into a style of life in which you now know that all isn't well, why not come back to your first love tonight? Jesus admonished the church in Ephesus to do that in Revelation 2, and we would, of course, echo the same today. If we could help you tonight, don't delay, but why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?